can no longer rule the world. It's a multipolar world now, and our national interest is right here at home, taking care of our needs. Why should we sacrifice our members' livelihoods when this company has made record profits? We're telling them, we'll leave our pension alone. Some of our members who have already passed away and the claims were filed. We just had one amount of death that was uh, given out to the, by the city. It took 14 years in court. When I first came in here, I actually, I didn't walk. I would kind of use my leg as a cane because it was about a half inch too long. And so you, I just kind of pogo my way through it. And I just dealt with that. When I left them, they went to the police to report me that as a migrant, I stole. They didn't give me anything. So as I left them, and then they tried to report me to the police because they wanted me to be sent back home. By 1935, their pay was down to just 20 cents a day, a pittance for all the work they did, building roads, airports, and other projects. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. The American people don't want another war. The Ukrainian people don't want a war. The Russian people don't want a war. On Thursday, as Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine, we talked with longtime labor and anti-war activist Gene Bruskin on Your Rights at Work about a working-class analysis of the crisis in Ukraine. Then, on the checkout, bakery workers in Minnesota take on Cub Foods. From The Labor Show, our newest network member, Tommy McKiernan, first vice president of Firefighters Local 22 in Philadelphia, explains a presumption law and how it's preventing access to medical care for firefighters who have cancer. On the latest episode of Trucked Up, the podcast from UAW Local 2209 in Fort Wayne, Indiana, we hear from James Dixon, an amputee who's become an inspiration to his fellow workers at the auto plant. The Gig Podcast dropped season two last week, and in episode one, The World's Oldest Profession, we learn more about what domestic and care work is and its roots in exploitation and slavery. We wrap up this week's show with On the Line Stories of BC Workers. This episode examines the so-called Dirty Thirties during the Great Depression and the forced labor relief camps the federal government of Canada set up in response. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on today's selection of highlights from the nearly 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. If you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, you'll find links to the entire programs in our show notes. And of course, you can find all 150 shows on our website, laborradionetwork.org. Here's the show. Oh, boy. 
boy, do you ever, and you are listening to Your Rights at Work. I'm Chris Garlock here once again with Mr. Ed Smith. If you have questions about what exactly the rights are you have on the job, the ones you have, the ones you don't have, the ones you wish you have, this will be the time and the place. Give us a call, 202-5880. Nine three Magic Mike, our engineer, will get you on the air. We will get your questions answered. On today's show, the American people don't want another war. The Ukrainian people don't want a war. The Russian people don't want a war. But here we go again. The next time, they're going to be looking at you. And you're going to need a lot of information to know what you're going to want to do because in 1985 blind faith in your leaders or in anything will get you killed because what I'm talking about here is And that, of course, Bruce Springsteen with War. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Our guest, Gene Bruskin, longtime friend of mine, very active organization called U.S. Labor Against War, which technically, I guess, Gene, doesn't exist at the moment. But uh, you and a bunch of folks put out a great statement you know, like I think a lot of folks, I've been very confused about, you know, what is going on here? You know, why should I care about what's happening in Ukraine? I'm speaking from the point of view of the interest of the labor movement and the average worker here and in other, around the world. And nothing that I say in any way is an excuse for Putin and his oppressive rule in, in Russia or their aggressive military actions in Ukraine, etc., But to understand what's going on, we have to take a look at the underlying issue here, uh, and that's Russia's opposition to the role of NATO and the U.S. broader view of our military role in the world. There's a graphic of U.S. spheres of influence, and it shows a gigantic wall chart uh, with circles everywhere in Uncle Sam, and then it shows the bear, the Russian bear in the corner with a circle around Russia as their sphere of influence. Now, internationally, the World Trade Union Movement, the International Trade Union Confederation, European Trade Union Confederation, have all called for support of a 2015 agreement called the Minsk Agreement that would say, let's have neutrality in Ukraine. Unfortunately, we've missed that moment. It's now gone beyond that. We've got so many problems right now, Chris. We have the COVID problem, climate change, racism, economic hardship, political divisions, and our foreign policy right now is unfortunately making it worse, not better. We just voted on $800 billion a year for the Pentagon. That's more than almost all the large nations in the world combined. We got 800 military bases around the world. That's not giving us security. And we need to understand as a country, 
that we can no longer rule the world. It's a multipolar world now, and our national interest is right here at home, taking care of our needs. In addition to the crisis we're in now, pending this next crisis is the same problem with China, where we're surrounding them with military bases in South Korea and Australia, etc. And uh, it's going to exaggerate it. It's going to actually going to become worse. <laughs> Labor needs to fight for peace and justice at home, not more war. That's Jane Breskin. He's a longtime labor activist, one of the founders of U.S. Labor Against the War, which, as Jane very uh, correctly pointed out, was founded uh, as uh, opposition to U.S. intervention and invasion of a sovereign country. All right. That's going to do it for this edition of Your Rights Work. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, as always, to Mr. Michael Nacella, engineer extraordinaire. See you next week, everybody. Welcome to the checkout. Thanks for making time for us. Walter Borgen, BCTGM Local 22 in Minneapolis. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Errol. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Sure. Tell us a bit about the type of work that BCTGM Local 22 members do. We do everything from fresh baked products. We have a candy shop, Pearson Candy over there in St. Paul, pasta, chips, uh, and grain milling. That's awesome. It's a nice set of pantry items there. Mm-hmm. What has the work been like during the COVID-19 pandemic for your members? Well, our members have largely all been essential workers because we got to make food and people still have to eat. So they've been uh, they've been coming to work, just many people in the food industry, and they were fortunate uh, to not be part of the groups that businesses were shut down. And members in our supermarkets particularly were at risk when uh, we have thousands of people coming in and out of the supermarkets because they have to buy food and not knowing how this pandemic was going to play out, they all felt like they were risking their lives by coming to work in a supermarket environment. What is the root of the current concern right now with UNFO? They've insisted from the beginning that they're going to withdraw from our pension fund. And as we've played along, they also have additional proposals taking things away from our members. Our pension fund uh, at the end of 2019 was fully funded at 104%, considered one of the healthiest pension funds in the country. When COVID hit, as the markets crashed, we lost $36 million in that first quarter. But by the end of 2020, the fund gained back all that, plus over $15 million, proving how well managed our fund is. Our pension fund is set up for long-term success due to the decision made by the trustees in 2012 to end early retirement options for new members moving forward. People were collecting more in retirement than what was contributed, Errol. And that's, I believe that's the root cause of many of the failures of employer pension funds in the country. Currently, the company uh, UNFI contributes $1.77 per hour into the pension fund for our members with zero contributions from our members into this pension fund. What they're offering in negotiations is $0 as a defined contribution to the 401k that they're demanding we accept as a replacement for our pension. Members would be forced to contribute significant amounts of money uh, into their 401k plan to try to make up for the loss of $1.77 per hour that they're receiving for pension. They're touting a proposing $1.50 wage in, in year one, 
but if they're not contributing the dollar 77 per hour, that's a net loss of 27 cents per hour in overall com for compensation. And amongst other things, they're trying to take away from us. They're trying to get us to sacrifice our time and a half pay over eight hours worked in a day. They're trying to expand their management rights language to open the door to more flexibility for the company. We wouldn't we that we wouldn't have a leg to stand on if we challenge some of these things they're trying to through our grievance procedure. They're trying to add language to our guaranteed hours section in the contract that allows them more ways to deny our members guaranteed hours. All this after making record profits due to restaurants locally being shut down during the pandemic, people were forced to go to these supermarkets to buy groceries. These, the shelves were bare. They made a fortune. We just, we don't understand why after making a fortune, they want us to take all these concessions. Another question is, have they done really well profit-wise during the pandemic? Is there any reasoning that they have relative to their own financial performance or is, does that fly in the face too of these rollbacks? They've done extremely well. They, they, they reported millions in profits during the pandemic because all of the restaurants locally were shut down. If you went to any of these cub stores, depending on the, at the time and period in the pandemic, there was bare shelves on a lot of these shelves because people were rushing in to buy groceries. They didn't have the convenience of going to the restaurants. They were all shut down. All the other contracts that we've bargained recently and throughout the pandemic, we've been getting some of these contracts, we've been getting record contributions in wages and in you know, enhancements in benefits because companies use their profits to share with our members. So what are your demands here and what kind of activities are you guys taking to make sure those are met? Our demands are if we have good union benefits that aren't in jeopardy of, of failing anytime soon, leave them alone. And why, why should we sacrifice our members' livelihoods when this company has made record profits? We're telling them, we'll leave our pension alone. There's no reason to withdraw from a pension that's doing well and is fully funded when other employers actually gave us higher contributions and pension increases than we've seen in, in decades. Thank you, Walter. Thank you, Errol. This is The Labor Show with J-Doc and Krause. Man, a good Saturday night, everyone, and welcome in to another live edition of The Labor Show with J-Doc and Krause as we broadcast to you live here on Talk Radio 1210. WPHT. We're all presented exclusively by Pond Lahaki. Of course, my partner, Jay Doc. Welcome in, brother. Got a great show lined up. Hour one, hour two, and hour three. Mike Bresnan is the president of Local 22, the International Association of Firefighters. Also joining us, the first vice president, uh, Tommy McKiernan. Let me bring in first VP, Tommy McKiernan. We're going to talk to you about something called the cancer uh, presumption situation. And, and, and individuals aren't getting the right treatment who have can't talk about the situation. I, I can't even believe it when somebody told me. It. So this has been uh, an ongoing battle since, uh, I guess, 2011 when the bill was put into place. Uh, I want to throw a couple numbers at you guys real quick. So between 2002, 2019, NIOSH, you guys are familiar with NIOSH, yep. and the National Fire Protection Agency, put together some data. We made a couple of determinations. The number one cause of death now for firefighters across the country, 66% of all career firefighter line of duty deaths is due to cancer. That surpassed all the cardiac issues. 
Firefighters have a 9% higher risk of being diagnosed with cancer and a 14% higher risk of dying from cancer than the general population. With all this data coming out back in 2011, probably like 2010, the state House and the state Senate were made aware of this, and they decided to come up with a presumption bill. So the problem with the presumption bill is in the state of Pennsylvania, workman's comp, the employee normally has the burden of proof as to whether they were exposed to a disease or an injury. The presumption bill was supposed to change that, and by the interference from the courts, they flipped it right back into the burden of proof uh, on the firefighter. You have members that are really sick, and what's the situation there? there I've heard individuals in, in, in City Hall tell me that who are in support of Councilman David O called me up and said it seems like a strategy of risk management is to not do anything and wait and outweigh a situation until uh, somebody dies. What the situation with, with the individuals that are sick right now, what should they be getting, and what is actually happening? All right, so like, without getting you all the legalities, I'll leave it up to the lawyers. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what happens to our members, and, and this is what uh, gets us riled up. So a member files a claim. And they make notice to the city, but they send the claim over to risk management. And risk management has what they call a third-party administrator, PMA, who makes a decision on whether the cancer is covered or not. So workman's comp is tough, so they have what they call uh, a temporary order of compensation, or they have an issue where they're just flat out denied. So if a member is denied, they have to use their own sick time, or they have to come to work. All right, so if a member is still healthy enough to come to work, they come into work, and they do their job. If they're too sick, they have to run out of their own sick time. So the problem arises here when you have a member, say, that isn't old enough to retire. So we don't get lifetime medical. We get five years medical after you're of retirement uh, age. So if I have a 50-year-old member who has 15 years on the job and he has cancer and he's too sick to work, he goes off the rolls. All right, so he's not a city employee anymore eventually after a, a certain period of time. The problem with that is they don't have any medical. So if they don't get it to Medicare age or if their claim's not accepted, they're up to their own resources on how to get medical. That's the situation our members have right now. So they're being left in the dust is what's happening. And what department in the city handles this? Is this risk management? Yeah, it's risk management. They're not breaking the law, okay? But the problem is here, the claims are getting denied, but they don't have to be denied. This is what's happening. And who can do something about this? The city administration can. I don't want to name names, but risk management and the city administration can handle this and take care of it. City council, you no, know, thank God, had the hearings. And Cindy Bass wants to expand those hearings. I hope that happens to put a little bit of pressure. But city council's only power is a resolution because this is a state law. Tom, not to cut in, but Joe, bottom line is, and I know Tommy's being, it's the mayor, he hires uh, risk management. So it goes to the top. And uh, we're always willing to have a conversation with him, get this straightened out. But I'll let Tommy continue. He's really explaining what's going on here. Sure. So city council doesn't have the resources to stop this or to change it. They can do a resolution, and the resolution puts some weight on the city administration. There's some talk about us going back to the state and asking the state to rewrite it, but there's the League of Cities and there's insurance companies out there that are actually, believe it or not, fighting this because of the cost. So every single little municipality out there in the state has their own costs, obviously. And from what I understand, and that we have to talk to the legislators up at the state, that some of these insurance companies are just refusing to some of these cancers. So I, I, that's the yep. boat we're in. It's a tough battle uphill. And you have members that are in, in serious 
danger. You have members that are in a situation where they're gravely ill. And if it lasts much longer, they may not make it. Correct. We've, we've had cases where it starts at three years in court. Some of these cases could take three to six years on average. Now, the other issue is we some of our members who have already passed away and the claims were filed. We just had one amount of duty death that was uh, given out to the, by the city. It took 14 years in court. From the time, from the day it was initiated to the day that claim was settled. I'll, I'll mention one name, almost I have permission to mention it, and that's what most of the hearing was about, was John Narkin, Chief Narkin. So his concern is he wants everything settled before he passes away. His wife gets, his wife gets benefits. That's the issue. So when you have a line of duty death, your pension payout uh, to your spouse and the medical benefits uh, change. Um, that's a whole other conversation to have. First Vice President Tommy McKiernan. Great stuff, Pat. Uh, Thank you, brother. Thank you, guys. Welcome 2209 to another podcast episode. It is 2022. Uh, We have another one of our wonderful members at Local 2209 that gives his time and dedicates all his positive feedback and learning and mentorship into our community at an unbelievable heartwarming experience that I've known. But just a little personal um, information. I met James uh, in strike captain training, and he has always kept me on my toes ever since the first time I met him. But that was the first time I've actually talked to him. I had an experience with him one-on-one. But as a temp, I've seen him walk around, and I'm like, there's this guy. Who is this? Now, the reason that stuck out for me is because James is an amputee. So if you're in the plant, you're, you've noticed him. I mean, it, you can tell. At first, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe he's in here doing this work. And, oh, well, that's crazy. And, man, he looks pretty buff. And, okay, so I feel like I need to step my game up. What's my weakness? I have two legs. But meeting him and talking to him, he does so much in the community. And he is involved with a mentoring, amputee mentoring program, basically. Right. Um, but there's a lot of information I don't even know about you. I've never sat down, spoke to you about, one, you've worked here for how long, okay. that kind of stuff. So, you know, I'm a third generation when it comes to General Motors. Uh, initially, it wasn't even my goal or thought that I would end up investing my life in a factory. You know, it was the idea was that uh, I had a different career path, but you know how your steps just kind of get ordered. You know, your mm-hmm. family has pride and sense, and there's an opportunity, and the jobs are great, mm-hmm. phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I came in, I came in as a temp, but I was an older temp, you know, so, and I had no idea what to expect. You remember when you first came in, they did a little, uh, uh, they do drug tests, and then they had you play with toys, <laughs> yes. you know, and so you put the square on the square. I was like, this would be an easy job. All I got to do is stand here and stack this stuff up, you know, and it's, uh, it was just a, like a kid game or something, you know. And I was like, well, that was easy. And I remember going through the orientation and thinking, man, this, this is not going to be bad. They were like, make sure you drink water and stuff. I'm like, this won't be bad at all. My grandma said she played card games at work. You know what I mean? <laughs> this was 50 years ago, but I, this days. is going to be easy. Right. I can't wait. So I get, a, get here, and I get to my first job, and I didn't realize that sometimes temps don't get the best jobs, you know. <laughs> so I didn't get to drive trucks off the line or anything like that. I started off as working on motor, uh, on a motor line, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I had to put uh, 
I knew it was a bad job when all three shifts were temps, right? And then after like two weeks, I was the most senior person, wow. you know? And then it just kept seeing people come and go, come and go. And and uh, it, it was really rough. I was losing weight while I was doing the job. I was like, man, this. And I had a TC who said, no bathroom breaks for temps, you know? And so I went like nine months without ever going to the bathroom. And it was like, man, this is rough. And, um, and I nearly quit several times because I would go home and uh, as an amputee, and I would have to soak in the tub to get swelling down. I'd have friction issues, you name it. But I, but I couldn't quit because I had accountability to the fact that my, uh, my family at, at that time referred you in. Mm-hmm. And when some, because I was under someone's name, I, I, took, I took great pride in that. You know? And also, uh, I have a family. You know, I have mm-hmm. kids and stuff. And I said, how do I take care of them? or set the example by quitting. But there were so many times it was really rough on me. When I got the insurance here, um, the UAW changed my life because uh, I went, I was able to go get a $35,000 leg and pay $0 for it. And that leg uh, changed my abilities. I had a limitations that I was overcoming. And when I used to walk, when I first came in here, I actually... I didn't walk. I would kind of use my leg as a cane because it was about a half inch too long. Mm. And so you, I just kind of pogo my way through it. And I just dealt with that. And so to get my hips fitted right, took away that the pain from my back and all that. But to have a leg that gave energy returned back to me. So as I stepped forward, it would store up energy and then release it. And it would help me in what I was doing. And it was about 25 pounds the first leg. Mm-hmm. This one was about six pounds. So to get a leg ha- sure. that much lighter made me that much more agile. And I mean, without the UAW, I would have never even had that experience. Thank you, James. I really appreciate yeah, everything you do. Here. No, thank you, guys. And thank you. I always love talking to you because it always makes me feel so positive and oh, upbeat wow, <laughs> and a little bit more go-getter kind of thing. So I, thank you for taking the time out, coming in, talking with us. Um, if there is any information you want to give out to us any at any other time, get a hold of me yeah, just, and let me know. We'll anything you want us to shout out or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it, guys. Yep. Thank, no you. thank you for the honor to come here. Oh, oh, thank you for being here. <laughs> what is domestic work? It's everything we do at home. Uh, to keep our home clean, to keep our home safe, is about maintaining our family's healthy and sound. Without it, all other work is impossible. That's Elizabeth Tang. She lives in Hong Kong and she's leading the International Domestic Workers Federation. And I'm Bama Athreya, host of The Gig. This podcast is about the future of work, and this season will focus on the world's oldest profession, domestic or care work. These are jobs that are essential everywhere in the world and for all of us, but they're often invisible. It's work that has been necessary ever since the rise of complex societies, and it's work that has a long history of being performed by slaves. Elizabeth will explain a little more about what this work includes. It is about cleaning, cooking, laundry, ironing, shopping, caring for infants, children, caring for elderly people, caring for sick people, 
is almost about everything we do in the private households. You may be wondering what this has to do with the future of work. This podcast is about how technology is transforming every kind of work, even domestic work. In the first season of The Gig, one story developed a life of its own. Drivers on ride-hailing apps around the world started organizing and pressuring platforms like Uber for change. But while I was interviewing those drivers, I was also interviewing lots of people about the ways in which technology was transforming the jobs you'd think were least likely to be digitized, jobs that take place inside people's homes. And in ways, it was very different from ride-hailing. I wanted to come back to that story for this season, which we've called Who Cares? Elizabeth told me that not only were most domestic workers women, but many around the world are marginalized in other ways, too. They are disproportionately minorities in the countries where they work, and many are migrants. I would like to introduce you to one of them. Before the pandemic, when I could still travel, I spent some time interviewing gig workers in South Africa, and that included domestic workers. So here's Tembi. I caught up with her one afternoon after she finished work in a shopping center in Johannesburg. I'm from Zimbabwe. I came here 2008. That's when I got my first job. I was working in the south of Johannesburg. And then I worked uh, for the family of uh, five, three boys and then their parents. Unfortunately, their mother passed away. I worked them for about eight years. And after their mother passed away, they didn't have a job and everything wasn't well for them. They couldn't afford to pay me. That was in 2013. I didn't know that I was underpaid, long working hours. I was... You know, my working condition wasn't good, but I was just working because I thought as a migrant, I don't have any law or anything. I worked for them for eight uh, years. After those eight years, I didn't get any service pay. I didn't get any single cent, but I couldn't go and report because I was afraid. I thought maybe as a migrant, I don't have any rights because I didn't know anything. And then after that, I had to leave them. When I left them, they went to the police to report me that as a migrant, I stole. Really? Even yes. after you worked for them for that many years? Yes. Because they didn't pay me. They didn't give me anything. They were left with nothing. So as I left them and then they tried to report me to the police because they wanted me to be sent back home. They didn't want me to be in South Africa. So tell me a little bit about what actually happened. Did they report you to the police? Yes, they did report me to the police. We went to the police. I proved myself and I explained everything to the police. And then they told me, no, you are not supposed to work for them for this long. So I was told like that. They released me. They didn't arrest me. They saw that they were lying to me just because I'm a migrant. Tembi was luckier than she might have been. She had papers proving she was legally in South Africa so she was able to stay and found another job with a family that treated her respectfully. Not only does she have a better job now, she got connected with a migrant workers union and became an organizer. Listen carefully to hear how a social media platform played a role in that. I was mobilizing them like in places where they work. 
as I was walking with them, some through social media, some where I was working or wherever I was. Some, they couldn't come in the open. They would start explaining to me, like, I'm being treated like this at work. What was it like when you first started doing that? It was nice to me because I found it as a hobby. I really enjoyed it. So I created a WhatsApp group to make things easier. And then when I was mobilizing them, I would give them my number. I would add them on the group. We'll continue chatting in that group. Like even now, the group from since 2013 is still running until today. I think we are more than 300 in that group. I just share the link to everyone. So if everyone gives someone the link and the, the link goes on and okay. on, so people, okay. they come and join us and then the group is still growing and growing. As they come in the group, I explain everything to them. I tell them that we are a union. Are people worried about joining or afraid in any way? No, that's easy. I found it very easy because we are many here. So now they know, they're eager to know more about the union. Care work employs hundreds of millions of people around the world. And without it, the rest of the economy could not function. It's also incredibly personal, involving our homes and our families. And it's work with deep links to the worst forms of exploitation and slavery. What can the future of work possibly hold for this sector? Can you Uberize care work? And is technology a curse or an opportunity? We'll be talking about all these questions over the next few episodes. I'm Bama Athreya, and you've been listening to The Gig. My producer is Evan Papp at Empathy Media Lab. You can support us by visiting our page on Anchor FM. That page is anchor.fm backslash the gig dash podcast. You can find our previous episodes there too. The Gig is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. To check out more shows on topics like this one, just visit laborradionetwork.org. Welcome to another edition of On the Line, a podcast that focuses on BC's rich labor heritage. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough. In this episode, we examine the Dirty 30s and the god-awful forced labor relief camps the federal government set up to try and get unemployed single men out of their hair. Vancouver was the end of the line for waves of boxcar riders looking for work. And with its relatively mild climate, the city was soon the unemployed capital of Canada. In 1930, the CP established the Workers' Unity League, a militant union organization that included the unemployed. They were soon leading large protests and marches to demand better treatment of those unable to find work. As numbers grew, authorities became nervous. To get them off the streets and away from the lure of the Workers' Unity League, the federal government established a network of work camps. Most were in the BC interior, far from the bright lights of Vancouver. Only by going to one of these camps could single unemployed men receive any kind of assistance. They were provided with bare bones accommodation, skimpy meals, and meager compensation for six days of hard labor. 
By 1935, their pay was down to just 20 cents a day, a pittance for all the work they did, building roads, airports, and other projects. With workers crammed together under these dreadful conditions, the camps proved perfect organizing territory for the Workers' Unity League. The League's Relief Camp Workers' Union soon had a foothold in camps all over the province. Their leader was the legendary driven communist Arthur Slim Evans. As anger grew over the slave camp conditions and military-style rule, Slim Evans and the Relief Camp Workers' Union declared a strike. Their rallying cry was work and wages. 1,500 relief camp workers poured into Vancouver. It wasn't easy to feed, house, and maintain order for such a rootless group, but the communist-led union was equal to the task. After six weeks, however, despite all this public support, the strike was getting nowhere. On May 18th, Evans upped the ante. The strikers' four divisions marched off as usual. Two headed to local department stores, one to the ferry depot for West Vancouver, and one to Maine and Hastings. That's the site of the Carnegie Centre today. But then it was the city library. All of a sudden, in they went, rushing up the stairs to the archive section on the third floor and barricading themselves against eviction. A large crowd of supporters gathered outside. The boys inside lowered baskets to those below who filled them up with food and drink and some medicine for those who ate a little too much. Jubilant snake dancers took over Hastings Street. Vancouver's hard-nosed Mayor Jerry McGeer, already notorious for his ludicrous reading of the Riot Act to a large crowd of peaceful protesters at Victory Square, gave in to the strikers' demands for the first time. The city agreed to feed and house the strikers, all 1,500 of them. Even if it was only for the weekend, it was something. At a mass strategy meeting, someone suggested taking the protests directly to Ottawa. The strikers roared their approval. Slim Evans quickly endorsed the plan. A few nights later, on June 3, 1935, in the dark of the Vancouver rail yards, hundreds of strikers boarded boxcars and headed off into the night bound for Ottawa. It was the beginning of the legendary On to Ottawa trek, an event so audacious and extraordinary it has come to symbolize the Depression. No one was happier to see the boxcars pull out than Jerry McGeer. All those single unemployed communists were now someone else's problem. I'm your host, Rod Mickleborough. We'll see you next time on The Line. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1987, marking the death of Edgar Daniel Nixon. Nixon's leadership in the struggle for black labor and civil rights spanned decades. He was born in 1899 in Louds County, Alabama. In 1928, Nixon joined A. Philip Randolph's Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters Union. The sleeping car porters were the first black-led union to get a charter under the American Federation of Labor. Nixon helped to form the branch of the porters in Montgomery, Alabama. He worked as a Pullman porter until 1964. He became a well-known community leader in Montgomery. In 1955, he helped bail Rosa Parks out of jail after she refused to give up her bus seat in defiance of segregation laws. In the days after her arrest, he helped mobilize the black community to boycott the buses. 
He invited Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to speak and support the effort. The result was the Montgomery bus boycott, one of the most important early actions of the civil rights movement. The 380-day boycott took great personal toll on Nixon. He was arrested and his house was firebombed. But he persevered, helping to bring an end to segregation on public transportation in the city. The boycott gained national attention and helped to launch the civil rights movement. Throughout his life, Nixon served his community as an organizer and activist. President of the local chapter of the NAACP, the Montgomery Welfare League, and the Montgomery League of Voters. During World War II, Nixon wrote to First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt calling for the establishment of a USO club for black servicemen. Nixon continued organizing around improving conditions in public housing well into his 80s. Edgar Daniel Nixon was one of many black leaders who served in both the labor movement and the civil rights movement. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Remember, we've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website at laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.